What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Aubrey Blanche is the Global Head of Equitable Design and Impact at CultureAmp, one of Australia's biggest startup success stories, an absolute powerhouse and world leader in workplace culture, inclusion and belonging. Aubrey has also recently been diagnosed with bipolar. Her mental illness diagnosis has really changed the way that she shows up in all domains of her life and work and has also fortified her commitment to dismantle the unhelpful systems that prevent each of us from telling our authentic stories and connecting with others in meaningful and satisfying ways. And now to each of you. Where do you feel like you truly belong and what stops you from sharing your full self with others? This conversation really challenged the way that I think about how purposeful we can all be to create a sense of belonging and equity for ourselves and each other. I was also deeply moved at the way that Aubrey shared her sense of both grief and hope around her diagnosis of bipolar and the power that occurs when we get to witness another person truly owning the things that makes them most vulnerable, not just the edited versions of ourselves we feel safest to share. We started our chat with Mads asking Aubrey some quickfire questions to get our synapses firing. What were you obsessed with as a child? Paleontology. What do you generally try to avoid in your life? Racism. If you had an infinite amount of money, what would you do? Give it to Indigenous-led climate tech projects. What can make you difficult to live with? Oh, I can be very dogmatic about whether something is fair or not. Um, And I generally am the rock and the hard place. (laughs) And finally, complete this sentence without thinking about it too much. In order to really understand me, you have to know that... You just have to check my book list. Mm. If you, you just have to check what I've been reading. The book's next to your bed. Yes, and also it is a public list on Goodreads. Ah, uh, nice, <laughs> nice. So you're a big reader. Mm-hmm. What's the last book that you read? Um, the last book that I read was uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. Okay, all right, some good quick questioning there, rapid fire from you, Matt. Your bio, Aubrey, says that you question, reimagine and redesign the systems and practices that surround us to ensure that all people can gain access to equitable opportunities. We're really curious what younger year experiences, what family of origin experiences led you to have that kind of interest? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I have um, a really... uh twisty kind of family story. So I'm adopted and I wasn't adopted till I was three, uh, which is a little bit um, unusual. And I, I was born into a situation that was like not the one that you would wish for. So low income, lots of mental health, substance challenges, you know, family of color. So again, a lot of different things working against me. And so there's that piece, but I was adopted by, um, 
like if you were to go to like the parents catalog and pick out like the extra awesome platinum edition, like you would have picked my adoptive parents. They're just like the best human beings. And for me, that difference, I am so acutely aware that little girls born like me don't sit in rooms with billionaires and don't you know, help run tech companies and things like that. And so for me, like the incredible privileges that I have, I don't know that I can justify doing anything else, but trying to make sure that other people have access to those same things because I've been so lucky. And for me, I don't want people from my community to have to be lucky to have opportunity. Mm -hmm. I just want them to have it. Mm -hmm. So that's it for me. And your gold standard parents, did they tell stories about equality and about your sense of belonging? How was that explained to you as a child who was adopted? Yeah. So I think my my whole family has always been wonderful in that, you know, the story was always just like, here's how you came to us. And it would, you know, like you are a kid, it doesn't matter. But my parents also, I don't think they ever talked to me about like fairness or equality in that way, but they're just such wonderful, warm people. And also have, when I look back, what is a shockingly diverse community themselves, especially growing up in a very white, very tiny town in the middle of the Midwest and the U.S. And so I think so, you know, that was we had family friends who were disabled. We had lots of LGBTI family members. You know, I as I was the only, you know, Latina Mexican-American member of my family, I was just taught that everyone should be treated well. And then what was really stark to me was when I got out in the world and found out that other people didn't live that way, it pissed me off. Mm. Um, And it made me motivated to solve it. So my problem was that I grew up in a kind of environment that I would want the world to be in. Um, And then I got to the world and I found out that it wasn't like that. The story that I'll tell that my uh, my dad tells is uh, I was reading a book and I ran into my dad and I was like, dad, this thing isn't fair. And he's like, Ob, the world's not fair. I got so angry at him and I just said, what a lazy thing to say. Mm. How old were you when you said that? Like six. Mm. So it just didn't make sense to me that like not fair was a state that you could accept. Mm. And I think like now I'm like, oh God, I've always been the exact same person. (laughs) Through your childhood or let's think about through teenage years when sometimes it's hard to temper anger in oneself about the injustice that you suddenly confront in the world, what, what were your teenage years like then dealing with both your background but also your dawning realisation that the world is not equitable? Yeah, I think for me, like teenage years were really um, isolating and I think I didn't actually have a collective consciousness of these issues yet. So it was really college where I discovered that a lot of the experiences I had as a Latina woman were not about me. They were actually systemic and social. So um, I didn't have this like anger about that because I didn't have a mental model because I was so sheltered in this tiny town and like in my family. But when I got to college, you know, folks can't see me, but um, I am a woman of color, but I'm white assumed. So most people on the street wouldn't know that if Mm -hmm. they looked at me. Mm -hmm. And people stopped being racist to me when I got to college. And I was like, why did that happen? And I was like, oh my God, they can't tell. Like had a whole realization about that. And that sounds very silly probably to a lot of folks on the line, but it was that moment that actually I started to say, oh, this isn't about me. Those feelings of exclusion or the bullying that's happening is actually much more extreme for other people. 
What kind of bullying had you experienced in your high school years? Yeah, I mean, like this example that sticks out is just like we would be in a classroom and it was a group project and someone said, Aubrey, you sharpen the pencils. And I said, why me? And they said, well, because Mexicans serve us. And or like, you know, I had a kid who would like slam my locker and be like, hey, Mexican. And so it was just a thing that I got taught socially that that was less than. But in my family of origin, my adoptive father is um, Native American and white. My adoptive mom is white. I'm mixed and Latina. So we got taught that like all of those categories were equal in our Mm. family. Mm. But then again, I learned through other people that socially that's not how other people engage with those Mm. categories. In terms of then their complexity, and of course, caveat, we all shift, I suppose, in our perception of ourselves all the time, how we identify, you know, with others mm-hmm. and our relationship to our, between ourselves and the world. For you then, with, with all of that playing out, where would you say your identity is at now in terms of your cultural identifiers and... and uh, or, or any, or otherwise. Or any, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, um, like, without question, being a Latina woman or, like, being a, a Mexican-American woman is so salient and central to who I am, um, which is interesting because it's invisible to mm-hmm. most people. The other two identifiers that tend to sit with me are um, my LGBT identification. I don't feel, like, a lot of oppression about that. It's just, like... It's a part of who I am. And then more recently, um, so last year I was diagnosed as bipolar type one. And so this idea of being, you know, mentally disabled has become a newer and much more salient part of my identity. And for me, all of those identities are very salient because of the work I do. Right. So, so much of the advocacy work requires you being grounded in your own identity so that you can socially place yourself so you know what your advocacy work is because we each have different work. So, for me, it's definitely being Latina and then um, being queer and then definitely being bipolar. And I think part of that is I'm very open about my diagnosis, largely because very few people are. And I just refuse to be stigmatized. Um, And I hope that I can break that down for other people too. Could you just explain for our listeners who might not understand um, what bipolar is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, so bipolar, there's a couple of different types, but it's a mood disorder. So basically, my brain chemically doesn't work the way most folks do. And so it means that my moods are often dysregulated. So as a type 1 person, I can experience mania. Um, so that is, you know, talking really fast, high body temperature, delusions of grandeur. In my case, I've experienced an episode where I was in psychosis. So you lose um, touch with reality. But it can also have major depressive episodes as well. It's something that can be treated with, you know, therapy, medication, you know, things like that. Everyone has their own path, but it's something that is often very underdiagnosed because people don't know a lot about it. Again, because of that stigma. One other thing that uh, people don't tend to know is that bipolar is actually um, much more overrepresented in executive CEOs, entrepreneurs, politicians. And so, there is actually a huge community of bipolar folks who simply don't talk about their illness. Or are undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Or are undiagnosed. And some of the greatest creatives the world Mm -hmm. ever had, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world, actually might be a little bit tending more toward that side of of whatever normal mental... uh, Absolutely. ..you know, mental models are. Did you... um, Was it... So you were diagnosed last year Mm -hmm. and then when you look back over previous years... 
Did you feel, look, something's not quite right or I'm not, you know, were there any flags for you before you were actually diagnosed? Yeah. So I had absolutely no idea, but looking back and my, my mom knows me better than anyone. Um, and she was like, it all makes sense. Mm. And my presentation is not overly extreme. And so it's not shocking that it wasn't um, diagnosed, but looking back, it makes sense. But going to this, like this idea about identity and connecting things, you only know what your own emotional reality feels like. And so I had no model that like those kinds of mood swings weren't normal. That I literally just mm. didn't know that other people didn't feel that way. And now that I'm diagnosed and I'm very lucky to be, have a great medical care team, I called my mother and I was like, you can just feel calm for four or five days in a row. Mm. Like I did not know that that was an option. And so I think going back kind of to the point of this podcast, I think it's why stories and why sharing are so important because I probably would have been diagnosed earlier and had a lot easier time Mm -hmm. had I heard stories from people who are bipolar and I would have been able to say, oh, that sounds like me. Many people don't want a diagnosis. They have a sense that something isn't working for them or they have a sense of being different to others around them. As a psychologist, I've had many people say to me, I'm fearful of a diagnosis or a clinical label because then I feel like that's what's going to arrive in the room before I do. Absolutely. I think it depends on how you relate to it. And I think it's the story that you tell yourself about it. I don't want to discount the role of stigma and judgment and people who are uncomfortable with, you know, any type of disability. But as Mads was saying, from my perspective, I've really tried to focus on some of the positive aspects of the disease. Like I absolutely think some of my creativity, what you were talking about, the fact that I have this constant, why couldn't we do it differently? Question comes from that my periods of hyperproductivity <laughs> without question um, come from that. And so I think it's about telling yourself a story about why this actually makes you valuable and worthy as opposed to less than. But I think that we learn how to do that in community. I think that it's it's the isolation that often makes it feel like it's leading because you can ruminate and you can do that as opposed to making a point of connection. Mm. Um, and then it becomes about integration as opposed to labeling, mm. I think. You used a word before, Aubrey, you described bipolar as, as you know, you being disabled. Mm-hmm. In what ways has it held you back or challenged you to a point of disablement? So there's a couple of reasons I use the word disabled. One is just like, it takes a lot of time. You know, there are costs associated with it. So for an example, sleep disruption is really bad for people with bipolar. I just moved to Sydney. That's a 14, 17 hour time shift. And so, you know, I had a sleep plan and medications booked out to make sure that my sleep disruption was minimized as I acclimated. That's extra doctor's appointments I went to. I invested in a plane ticket that gave me an easier time to sleep. I have anxiety. Like when I'm in a really good mood, I often am like, shit, I need to call someone and check to make sure I'm not talking too fast. I take medication every day. I'm careful about um, my alcohol intake. Right? There's so many ways that it shows up in my life. And so to pretend that it's not a disability would be a lie. And then the second piece, the reason I'm really careful to use the word disability is because 
I, again, going back to the stigma, like I don't feel any stigma in being disabled. And I think normalizing disability is important because 17% of people on average are disabled in any moment and we will all become disabled in some way in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And I actually had other mental disabilities before I was diagnosed as bipolar, but it was the bipolar that changed my label. Yeah. And language is so important, isn't it? You also use the word disease. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, I think I try to use really varied language to describe it. So I talk about illness, disease, disability. And I think the reason for that is because I don't want to sugarcoat that it is like challenge and it is something that negatively impacts my life in certain ways. So I'm an optimist and I'm happy to see the side, but I think it's really important to be authentic. And it's also important to normalize for people with disability that it's like, hey, I have a disease that I have to work with. I have a chronic illness. And so I actually do that more for other people than for me because I am fine and sort of integrated with it. But I always am thinking about if I normalize that for someone else, how do they better show up for the next person? Mm. And, and normalization is a huge part of destigmatization. Mm-hmm. Is, is is using ordinary language, accessible language, not keeping you know mental illness in the shadows where, where you can't build bridges to be able to say, well, I, I'm I'm like you, I just have this disease or disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also comes down to like one of the the things about all the work I do is I try to speak in in really direct language and call things what they are, right? I do a lot of anti-racism work. And so people are like unconscious bias and I'm like racism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And so I think it's the same thing in the the mental health and the disability space. And talking of which, we we sat on a panel, I think it was last year or perhaps the year before, a diversity inclusion panel. And I remember so clearly something that you said you said the use of the word guys, hey guys, is unhelpful or what would you call it? Sexist? I don't know what the, if we're going to, if we're going to out the well, language. Casual sexism. It's, it's a cultural manifestation of the patriarchy. Like, right. It's one of the ways that our society is biased in a way that systemically advantages men. So break that down though. Cause I loved what you just said before that let, let's yeah. speak in clear English and say, yeah. We, we, what does that actually mean? How could that impact people in unhelpful ways? Because people, I, I think we would all say, I'm not biased, I'm not racist, I'm inclusive, because that's the belief that we want to see ourselves through that lens. I'm a good person. Yeah, absolutely. So I think guys is such a good one, like example to use because it seems like it's so tiny. It's like, why do you care? And hey, it's gender neutral. But I think what we're talking about when you talk about um, sexism and how that leads to misogyny is that in many ways, what sexism does is it makes men the default human, right? So they're the default human who gets studied in medical studies. They get designed for with seatbelts. They get considered in terms of workplace policies. And so the use of guys as a, quote, gender neutral thing plays into the normalization of men as the default, which ultimately harms women in meaningful ways all over society. So the other um, idea that I'm really inspired by, so people are like, why, why is this the hill you're dying on? And I'm like, I'm not, but I'm going to say something, is that systems of oppression are fractals, So if you know what a fractal is, it's like a repeating mathematical pattern. And so there is power in breaking down that fractal wherever you can. It's kind of like compound compound effect. So like 
interrupting the pattern anywhere has something valuable to offer the collective. Mm. And so that's why with guys, you know, again, it's not something that I'm going to like harass someone about, but it is something I'm going to nudge someone about. You know, why can't you say, hey, folks, or hey, team, or I don't know, hey, humans. Hey, or- people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I suppose part of the issue, and uh, it, it's a good point to sort of segue into the incredible work, incredible work that you do around the world uh, to try and improve uh, diversity, not just, you know, diversity metrics, but but evangelise and, and advocate for the way we make our work more human and more representative of, of the varying degrees of humans who are out there. And we've been lucky enough to hang out at Atlassian in San Francisco and other places, and I've seen your work and, and, and incredibly impressed by it. Thank you. Um, Can you try and capture uh, the juggernaut that is your work? Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think I really just try to make organizations or products or systems that produce equitable outcomes because I believe equitable outcomes equal, you know, diversity or representativeness. Equitable outcomes create a sense of belonging for people. And so what do I do day to day? I help organizations, whether that's evolving their cultures and their systems or the way that they build products or even how they go to market. How do they think about doing that in a way that has a positive and equitable impact on the world? So primarily, obviously, I'm a senior director at Culture Amp right now. So I look after there, everything from thinking about their internal diversity, equity, and inclusion work to how they support their customers on their DEI journeys. And then I also look after things like our equitable climate impact work. Mm-hmm. And, and with culture, and I think we hear this word all the time, it's pretty buzzy and sexy right now, workplace culture and our culture's great and are you a cultural fit and will we hire you? Culture is pretty much what's left when everyone's left the building, right? It's an output. How do you architect culture? The first is you have to have data on it. So you have to understand what the culture is, right? Because every organization is going to have a different culture, which means they have different strengths and opportunities. And so first, it's measure what's true. So we know what we want the world to look like. So in my world, that means we want a workforce that looks like the population. We want to see high amounts of engagement, of authenticity, of belonging in the workplace. So that data collection tells me what's busted (laughs) first. And then how do you architect that? Then I think you go and you look at the policies, processes, practices and norms that exist and develop interventions from there. So I I always think that you want to go data policies first. That's like building the scaffolding and then processes, right? That's like framing the house. Then you attack practices. So the way that people collaborate, think about that, like putting up the drywall and the norms, which are these like squishy things that everyone, it's like the unwritten social rules. That's like furnishing the house. And so they can be harder to change, but But what you find is that um, if you change the culture in that order or you put the interventions in that order, it's sustainable. Can I challenge or just dig a bit onto the data? You know, I love it. How do you ensure that your data is not just capturing all the biases and blind spots that that you're pulling this raw material out? And then if you build a house on that, the house is going to be fucked. Oh, that's such a good question. So I think it depends on like what specific use case you're talking about. So if you're talking about technical product development, the bad news is you can't actually get all the bias out of your data. But when you're talking about like workplace data, I think it's important to understand there's like the um, hard process data, which the point is you're actually looking for bias so that you can 
adjust the process. So if you see, you know, statistically different outcomes, say for different groups in a performance process, it actually tells you that there's bias there so you can adjust the process. I think the other thing is when we're talking about experiential data, we're asking people about their lived experience and we're not asking them to make assessments or judgments generally about the world around them. And so they're less likely to have biases to apply, right? Because you ask someone, do you feel like you belong? They know, right? And so again, it goes back to having both this really good demographic data collection so that you can count folks and you can audit your processes. And then also this um, quantitative sort of subjective experiential data, which you collect via surveys, which again, that's what we do all day at CultureAmp. And so that tells you what is the truth of your culture at that snapshot in time. So that's the one last thing I would say about data is what I see with a lot of my clients and my, you know, my customers is that they'll do say an inclusion survey, but they won't resurvey. And so they don't actually know if what they put into the culture, into the organization actually created the impact that they wanted to see. And so really important that data collection on an ongoing basis is what's really important because we're talking about complex dynamic systems. Mm-hmm. And so our data gets old very quickly. So metrics are very important and people may shy away from that, A, because they don't want to know what's out there and B, because it seems complicated or expensive or time consuming or we want a quick fix. I imagine there's a lot of people that are like, but just what? What's your magic wand that you can wave and sprinkle around so that we can get on with what we do? Yeah. Dance through the office with a fan. Right. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you want me to undo structural oppression with $5 in three hours? <laughs> like, yeah, okay, good luck. I mean, which to be fair is mostly how people in my jobs are treated. So Culture Amp, um, we put out uh, in January this our 2022 workplace DEI report. So we surveyed um, HR and DEI practitioners across APAC, North America, and EMEA. And what we found was that only one one third of them were actually properly resourced to do their DEI initiatives. And this is always so funny to me because the way I think about this work is you think about the equity inclusion work is almost like the quality control Mm. for your culture, right? So it asks the question, does your culture work or does it only work for some people? And having just acknowledged that this is complex work, I'm now going to ask another question. Knowing that belonging is really one of the most primal human drivers in every domain of our life. If people are listening to this either as an employer or an employee, what's one or two things that we can all do without deep diving into the metrics to at least start the wheels of change towards a a greater sense of belonging? I think reaching out to another person and asking them what they care about and how they want to be supported or seen is really powerful. So I'm a big believer, or my particular theory, is that belonging is something that is created for us. It is not something that we can create for ourselves because it's a social thing. And so I always think about how do I help someone else belong? Hmm. Um, How do I help someone else experience belonging? Because it requires that social connection. Hmm. Um, And so I think that that is really powerful. And I think it's important that people do that with someone who's different from them. And that doesn't mean you walk up and you're like, hi, you're, you know, gay. And so I want to know about your life story. It's, hey, we work together and I realize that we haven't connected. I'd love to know a little bit more about you and what makes you tick. Can I ask another challenging question Always. on this front? All right. So, you know, there's sort of anthropological or, or social theories, and Sabina, you'll have deep knowledge on this, I'm sure, around the fact that as humans over the ages, we're actually not designed to interact 
with, you know, thousands of people around the world who don't speak like us, look like us, etc. Actually, from a primitive point of view, we're inherently, you know, racist, uh, let's call it that. And we have other self-limiting factors to sort of keep us safe in a tribe. What's the number of people that we are optimally meant to have relationships with? Well, 150 is the, sort of the top and then, but really meaningful relationships, it's like five. Yeah. And so where we look at globalisation and, and the expectation, we're rabidly social, whether that's on, you know, on, on social media or actually in our workplaces with, with this hyper-connectivity. Um, how do we allow for that where we design these systems of, of connection and, and diversity? How do we start to, and it's a complex question and I don't mean to sort of where I started isn't where I'm ending with it, but what are your thoughts generally about that that alchemy there? Oh, my gosh, I love being with you. These are such good questions. Um, yeah, so I think that um, in, in many cases we one of the reasons that belonging is so hard is because of the way that our relationality has been spread uh, past that 150 number. And so I think we have, like, it allows us to have these very superficial relationships that don't actually result in fulfillment. Now, that being said, right, social media, those things can also create belonging because you can reach out and connect with someone who you would have never had access to before. You know, I think about that, like, the number of bipolar executives who got in my DMs after and like what that did for me. So even though these are people that I exchanged six messages with, they were very superficial relationships. So I think the answer is yes and, but I think we as people need to understand what relationships are important to us. And I think actually as a society, we've forgotten about how to build those really close relationships. And then your your point about like we're inherently, you know, sort of, I think of it as groupist. Yes, we're like groupist inherently in-groupist. Yeah. I think that's true, but I also think that we have a prefrontal cortex. Yeah, so we um, can override. <laughs> and so I, th- I think it takes intention and I think it takes effort. And so we need to be honest about the fact that our amygdalas are assholes. Um, <laughs> But like, but we have the ability as like, as adults, as human beings to make a different set of choices when we get that. Yeah. Um, On the good days when our amygdalas are not being assholes to us. Well, we have to challenge the asshole within. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You said before um, that a lot of the work you you do is, um, you know, the question is that you want to ask people inside workplaces or otherwise, do you feel like you belong? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you belong? I do. Where do you belong? I have so many spaces where I belong. You know, I totally feel like I belong at Culture Amp. I love my job. I love the people. I get to do like my dream work. I think part of that actually, to be honest, was me coming out as bipolar. The amount of support that I have gotten, you know, I was like, I thought Didier was going to fire me. Um, did, did you really think that? I really did. I was absolutely terrified that I was going to get fired. What? Why? Well, because I had a manic episode partially at work. But yeah, I was terrified that I was going to lose my job. And, you know, when everyone was just so wonderful. So do you need extra time off? Are you okay? What do you need? You know, I had one coworker who I might actually cry. He is like, he's like my work husband. <laughs> and he, he just said, I got this for you. And he sent me a Slack message with two little polar bears and he said, if you're ever having a bad day, you can just send that to me and we can talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, sorry, I'm a little mm-hmm. emotional. But like, it's the little things like that. So if you ask me, so I'll say I belong at Culture Amp. And the reason is for little tiny things like that. You know, I love when I get my budget approvals. I love that we just launched this program. But like what's created belonging for me is like 
thank you, Josh. Mm-hmm. Like my little bipolar emoji. Or like an example, I just moved to Sydney and a camper who I had literally never met is like putting together a little happy hour so I can meet some other employees who are in Sydney. Like what an overwhelmingly generous mm. thing to do. And so, yeah. It's moving to hear those to hear those stories and to see how moved you are by them. I heard, I heard you say something about belonging being out there, not in here. Yeah. And yet... I kind of want to challenge that because you started something in those equations. So, for instance, with the bipolar story, you came to the people at work and said, I've got a recent diagnosis that I want to share with you. So you initiated something to change the dynamic. You didn't sit passively and let others envelop you with a sense of belonging. Mm. So I think it's two-way. Belonging is a, is a bi-directional process. I like that better. Yeah, I I think you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, it's co-created. Yes, co-created. I think I know why I push back so hard on belonging being something that's self-created. And I think where it comes from is this pattern that we see so often, not just in workplaces, but where marginalized people are saying, like, I don't feel like I belong. And people are, and then the response is like, well, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And the question is, what's wrong with the environment. Mm-hmm. So we need to share and, and be authentic and express knowing there are flaws in the environment, but it takes all of us to contribute to that dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. And fine. And that is about the language. It's commonality of, of language and, and creating safe and containers trust. or, or trust. spaces. Yeah, trust. Yeah, trust yeah. is the fundamental piece there. Yeah. Trust of self and trust of others and trust of the system that we, that we sit in. With the work you're doing... Aubrey, so you, you did incredible work at Atlassian, obviously, and you changed a lot of the, the tech conversation and diversity conversation in, in you know, in, in the US. And then with CultureAmp, you know, what is this next step for you then around how you are trying to ripple out your, your, your D&I work? Yeah, I think um, one of the really exciting things about Culture Amp is that they're they're so aligned from a mission perspective to DEI. So the next um, the next big play is for us to start thinking about how do we productize all of what we think of as the DEI R and D that we do inside our own culture. So we talk about wanting to be a culture first business, and we want to help other companies do that. So basically, we've spent the last couple of years really pushing our own DEI initiatives. So that we and I'll just put a little in brackets, yeah. diversity, equity, inclusion, yes. research and development. Oh, that was Close good. bracket. Yes. But so we've been doing a lot of work internally. We've learned a ton about what technologies would help us. And so the next thing for me is really thinking about productization and scale mm-hmm. of some of these solutions. So we have a lot already to offer on the data side. And now we're thinking about the question of from broader cultural and behavioral change, how do we enable that through our software? Software in ways that create fairer, high trust organizations with, again, always that lens on what's the equity QA of this. So mm. that's what I'm excited about is doing a lot more product strategy, getting to work with other parts of the business. But yeah, so it'll be uh, really, I think the next phase for CultureAmp is we really think about equity or what we call equitable design mm. um, being a full enterprise um, kind of thing. And so that's very exciting. And, and what's your relationship with technology? Because you're quite a humanist, have incredible insights as, as a human species. Do you think technology can save or change the world? I think technology is an accelerant. 
And so I think that technology is neither inherently good nor bad. It's how it's deployed and how it's maintained. Um, so I'm quite a technological optimist mm -hmm. in that I think, especially at the scale of problems that I'm interested in, compelled to work on, technology enablement is a non-negotiable. But I think that we have to be careful because I also think of technology like a very dangerous weapon mm. in that it can be co-opted, it can be used to harm. And so when you are handling something that has the potential to be very dangerous, you have to be careful and intentional with it. So that's one of your fears is alongside one of your hopes. What else keeps you up at night? Climate change. Totally. Uh, I have so much climate anxiety. Uh, it's uh, the, my new sort of area of focus. In addition to working on organizations, I do a lot of investing and things like that. And so a lot of my focus now is really starting to think about what it means to have equitable impact across the whole world. So Last year, I did a little bit of soul searching, and I said, why does my commitment to equity and justice only extend to people? And I couldn't really find a good justification other than myopia. As opposed to the planet or planet, animals? Yeah. Animals, or planet, um, you know, things like that. And so that's kind of the next frontier for me. It, so climate change keeps me up at night. Um, but when I have anxiety, I generally try to throw a corporate strategy at it. <laughs> And so that's a lot of what's both keeping me up, but what's energizing me is I'm doing a lot more work in the climate sector now. Yeah, and, and investing, which is investing awesome to in hear. Tech. As yes. you know, I also do a bunch of investing and angel investing, and there's a lot of work to do to improve diversity and representation around the sorts of businesses that are getting funded. Absolutely. I think last year was a record year with $10 billion here deployed in venture capital, but less than 3% went to female-founded companies. And so... There is much to do, I mean, not just females, but broadly to fund more diverse teams to try and build the solutions for the world, whether that's through climate change or other um, tech enablements and accelerants. Absolutely. And that's the reason that I sort of work at what I think of as all levels of the tech ecosystem is because going back to this idea of systems of exclusion are fractals, work where you can or, you know, what you what you know and try to disrupt those things that you have access to disrupt. What advice would you have for someone who was newly diagnosed uh, with bipolar and, and struggling with it? What would be some of the advice you would give? Find community. I think number one, find people who share your experience because you're going to need space and also like cry and feel your grief. So find your community and let yourself have your grief about it. That was, I think, the thing that has led me to be in what I consider a really healthy place with it is I allowed myself months of just feeling how much my life was going to be different, not necessarily bad, um, but different because I think we forget that we have to grieve the futures we no longer will have, mm. even if we don't think the one in front of us is negative. Mm -hmm. And I have said before on this podcast that I always define grief between the difference between where we are and where we thought we would be. And you've just, mm. you've just shared something of your own experience yeah. there. How does it look different to where you thought you would be? Um, now, I would say that I think I'm a little bit more aware and compassionate than I would have been otherwise. So even though it comes with a whole host of bullshit, I think that those types of things give you more perspective into what other people experience. And while I only know, you know, the bipolar experience in particular, it gives me just a slice of insight into what someone with a different type of mental disability. So I will never know what it feels like to have autism, 
But I now know a teeny sliver in a shade of that because I know what it feels like to be mentally different mm. in some way. Mm. And so I think that for me is it. And so it goes back to this idea. Um, I'm a really big believer in uh, Martin Seligman's theories of post-traumatic growth, mm-hmm. right? So uh, Flourish is the book that I think folks should read. But that for me is it. So I try, I feel that I have been lucky enough to have the community support to allow me to integrate that in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm more compassionate and more aware. And I really hope that that makes me a better person. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like it when we share the room with you today. Yeah. Aubrey, we finish every Human Cogs episode with the same question. And that question is, who do you think is doing human well? I think my mother does human very, very well. Whew, sorry, more emotions. And no sorry. Oh, that's right. No, she is um she's one of the kindest and most loving people that I have ever met and I learned so much from her and I hope that I live up to that example. But I think that that finding love and connection between people is the most human thing we can do. Thanks for sharing and joining us. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.